All right, well, let's uh, go ahead and <clears throat> bust the word, and we'll get to praying. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we'll, re- we'll be in First Timothy chapter 3, where we have been. And uh, we're going to be, again, continue talking about building people who build churches. And I'm heading toward the end of the chapter. Uh, the end of the chapter, I was, again, I was touching on it this morning in Philippians with the mystery of godliness. And uh, it's no accident, I'll kind of steal the thunder before I get there, that God is working through these character qualities uh, of the, the pastor, the deacon, the, the bishop, or the deacon to be specific is the way it's worded there. Uh, he's working through these character qualities because ultimately we're dealing with Christ manifest in the flesh. <clears throat> and so, uh, of course, uh, we aren't Christ, but he does live in us, so his, his light should be manifest through us. And so uh, there's a reason that he's talking about the character qualities of the men of God and the women of God uh, and 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 he concludes at the end of the chapter with this uh, the, this issue of the, Jesus being manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit seen of angels preached unto the Gentiles believed on in the world and received up in glory okay so um, let's go ahead and uh, pray and then we'll bust into um, you know the rest of this this discussion today, Heavenly Father. We uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh, just uh, be in your Word today, uh, tonight, as we prepare our hearts to pray, doing that priestly work of prayer, uh, Lord. That's uh, not as easy as people think, Lord. There's a lot to pray for, and there's a lot to praise you for, Lord. I, I just uh, was having a meeting with about discipleship and looking through the people in discipleship, the people discipling, the fruit that you're providing through your Word, and I want to praise you for that, Lord. I thank you for it. I ask your blessing upon the reading, the hearing, the investing of your word in the lives of other folks, Lord, that, that Lord, it would just continue to bear fruit, that our minds would be renewed, our hearts would be, um, Lord, uh, you know, changed to have an attitude of gratitude and a desire to serve you and to love you with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, that you would transfer, transform, I'm sorry, our lives, our hearts, and our families, and our culture, Lord. This culture needs you. They need light. They need life. They need the rock of Christ. I pray, Heavenly Father, we'd represent that very clearly. And, uh, Lord, that uh, uh, the words of God would just be irresistible, Lord, to the hungry and thirsty hearts. And, Lord, that uh, that the Word of God would also serve as a hammer to break up the stony heart. And so, Father, we thank you, we praise you, we ask a blessing on your Word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're talking about you know revealing the purpose, the revealing how the office and the officers and the congregation magnify the incarnation of Jesus Christ through the steadfast and godly character. All right, that's what God builds churches on. Um, you know, is is people. He uses people, and their character is important. Um, hey, brother, do you do handouts? Okay, and so. I say godly character, and look who shows up. There you go, brother. So, uh, so, so we're so the uh, um, so as we look at chapter three here, uh, we saw that that all Paul is saying in First Timothy two and three is leading us to First Timothy three sixteen, as I just said a moment ago, which I just read. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. So we want to be real. So I've been talking about that, right, on Sunday night or Sunday mornings. I've got my nights and my mornings confused now. Right, we're talking about the realities of heart. We want to be, when we say real, we want to be authentic. 
And we talked, we've been talking about how important it is to be what's written of us. I mentioned to somebody within the last couple of weeks in a sermon somewhere about the need. Manly Beasley would talk about how we need to be what's written. And, uh, and so that's important. The Lord is going to come back soon, and he, we need to be prepared for Him at His coming. So one of the reasons God has given us this passage is to help us uh, straighten up our lives, right? So we can be prepared for the Lord's coming. And uh, I'll get into that more as we get into chapter 4. But we want to be ready. All right, so let's let's take uh, some time to, to make this real practical. So if you uh, were to have someone over to your home, um, I just told you this morning, like Pastor Rodgers is going to be with us, and right. So um, how much notice does your wife want, right? Uh, right, she wants plenty of notice. So uh, it's the first of June. You, I, I'm, you guys, I'm a living epistle. You see, I'm, a, I'm demonstrating <laughs> before God and everybody, honey. Pastor Rogers coming to our house, right? He's going to stay with us. So that gives us a month. This doesn't take us that long, but it, it just lets, it, it's really it's important to let her know. She didn't know because she already knew that it was a possibility, but I found out yesterday it's a certainty. So she found out this morning it is a certainty. It's not a possibility any longer. He is going to be here. So why? Why is that important? Because she wants time. She wants to know what's coming. She wants to be able to prepare the home, have all the you know laundry done, the dishes, whatever, the basement cleaned up where he stays. You know the towels down there, da da da. da the bathroom cleaned. That's always an issue because Sam uses that bathroom, and so <laughs> you know all that stuff we got to do to to uh, you know get things ready. And so, you know, would your wife want seven minutes? Would she want seven hours? Or would she prefer seven days? Seven day, my wife, seven days, definitely. Um, it's not to say you can't be done faster, but seven days is much better than seven hours, and seven, or definitely seven hours is much better than seven minutes, right? And so we want to be ready when the Lord comes. Uh, we want the inside of the house to look good. We want it to re- be reflected on the outside of the house. I'm the outside of the house guy, so uh, you know I'm like out edging. We had Sam's party out in the backyard. You know I make sure the grass is cut, so I bagged it. I'm like, I don't want any mulch on. Amy could care less about mulch on people's feet. I'm like, no, honey, we need to make sure we bag this thing up here because I don't want people walking through the mulch, right? And so the men got a different perspective than the women, but I'm, we're all kind of the same, just a little different. And so, um, and so we all you know, have our thing, and we want to be ready when people come. And, and so, um, you know, it, seven hours, that's probably enough time to give my wife time to put things in order most of the time. Uh, but what if it's that special guest, right? What if the president was going to show up at my house? Um, I don't know how we would do with that. But anyway, <laughs> some, some dignitary was going to show up at our house. Um, what would it say to that guest if we're not prepared? You know, um, if, if a presidential motorcade or what have you showed up to your house and, uh, and the media came along with it, you wouldn't want your house looking shambles. At least I wouldn't. My wife wouldn't either. Some people really don't care. But um, you would want everything outside and inside in order before you met the president, before the press comes in your house. Uh, So, you know, this this evening what we want to do is really make sure that we are ready, uh, that we are ready for not just the Lord's coming, but we're ready for what the Lord has for us tomorrow, today, because he lives in us. I mean, we have the King of Kings living in our lives, and he's in our bodies, he's involved in all that we do. And we need to be ready. How we deal with the day-to-day is going to prepare us for how we uh, are received when we meet him in the air. I mean, all these things are, it's on, right? It's not like someday, it's now. Someday is not tomorrow, it's today. So, uh, in spite of all of the current attitude toward truth of the Word of God, and the office of the pastor and the deacon, you know, just being beat up, 
I just saw a horrible um, situation unfold on social media. Probably some of you saw it. The church in Warsaw, the pastor caught in adultery, just aired all over you know, a week or so ago. How many of you saw that? Oh, praise the Lord. I'm glad you didn't see it. So, um, so it's just ugly. Uh, it was an ugly unfolding. Um, I just yesterday got an article about, you know, it was from a liberal perspective why evangelicals are so crazy, you know, blah, 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 and pro-Israel, pro-this, pro-that, hypocrites, blah, 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 you know. And so there's all of this stuff out there in the atmosphere, in the ether. And um, and and so uh, in spite of all those attitudes and, and, and even some very poor actions by many, um, the word of God is still true, and the offices are still honorable. You could say that for a lot of things. You know, you could say that for the office of the president. No, no matter who's in the office, right? The office is still honorable, and who I can't say about the people in it, but I can say the office is as honorable as the people that are in it. But it's meant to be held by people of honor, even though it's not always the case. And so, as pastors and deacons and officers, right? They obviously should honor the office. And what a glorious thing it is to be faithful, right, until the Lord comes for his church. And that's not just for officers. That's for every man and woman in the body of Christ. Because the day of the Lord's return is nearer than when we believe. So, on your hand out there, I'm just reviewing some things. Um, we see at the top, and I'm not going to, that's already filled in for you. This is where we've been. We've talked about how... Um, the, the, how the glory of God is reflected in the characteristics of the office. Uh, the office is a good office, the office of pastor, of bishop. It's a good work, and it's a good office for godly men to desire, right? He that desires it, the office of a bishop desires a, a good work. We saw that uh, the glory of godliness is reflected in the characteristics of the office. We also saw that it is reflected in the character of the officers. And so we've already covered those, uh, we see those 18 uh, points there. We covered those in detail. Uh, Wendy went ahead and filled hers out in advance because she knows how to read the Bible ahead. So I saw that, which is good for her. And uh, now we're, we're looking at the deacons, which I've touched on, but I'm going to go a little deep dive. This isn't going to be like blow your mind, but there are some things here as we look at it that are things that we need to just review as we lead as, as God leads us into the end of this chapter, which is clearly where we're going. So 1 Timothy 3, uh, uh, let's look at this text. It says, This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. Right, we've covered that. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, no greedy, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, <clears throat> not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Verse 7, Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. The devil's mentioned twice there. Verse 8, Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slander, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon have well purchased to themselves a good decree, degree I'm sorry, and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. 
We've already prayed. I feel like praying again, but we'll keep moving. So by God's grace, help us, Lord, with this text. So the point B here on your outline, the deacons, right? That's really hard to... to uh, Yes, uh, we talk about the deacons in chapter 3, 8 through 10, and verses 12 and 13. And so the first thing I will point out is uh, um, is this word likewise, right? This likewise. Likewise must the deacons be grave, right out of the text there in verse 8. Likewise must the deacons be grave. Okay, so when it says likewise, the deacons must be like what and who? Right, the bishops, the pastors, right? So they have to be like them. Likewise means that though they are servants and don't have the same authority or responsibility over the flock, they still have the same character, right? They have a different function. That's someone who hits. Um, you can brawl with words and you can brawl physically. So there is, they're very similar. Uh, but they're not exactly the same. There's guys that will lose their temper and strike out, like put a hole in the wall um, and just be violent. And then there's people who brawl with people who are looking for a fight. There's a slight difference, but they're but they're not always the same. Uh, there's some guys that will hide. Um, you know, they'll be a striker. They're, and they may or may not hurt people. Um, and then there's guys that look for a fight. They're not so much going to put a hole in the wall, but they're looking for people to they're looking for people to fight. And so one's kind of a measure of a temperament, um, a lack of temperament, and one's kind of a measure of a, a brawler, someone who's looking for contention. A striker is not always looking for contention, but they, they respond with violence, usually striking things. You see what I'm saying? So there's a, it's similar but not exactly the same. Obviously, brawling involves striking, but it's not necessarily the same, um, same characters, character problems on the inside. So um, that's a good question. Thank you for asking that. So <clears throat> the deacons must be like the pastors, uh, and it means that though they are servants, they don't have the same authority and responsibility over their flock. They should still have the same character. So they do not just do a job, right? They fill the office. So their primary responsibility is service to allow the pastor or pastor's time for the word of God in prayer. And I like the way they, they, it is something that they fill the office, right? That's kind of how we say it. There's, it, it takes a deacon also some time to really understand what that means uh, to fill an office. Um, but uh, uh, the word grave is not used specifically in reference to the pastor, which is interesting. Uh, to be grave in our current English definition is to be serious and sober. And that's a great definition. However, in the scripture, the word uh, used, as an ad- is used as an adjective here, and it means to be honest, so that is a little bit of a difference between how we today use the word grave. You think of grave, you think of someone who's very serious and sober. But here, uh, when we're talking about someone who's honest, the word grave is translated honest in Philippians. Uh, whatsoever chapters, right? Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are lovely, right? whatsoever things are honest, it's the same word, grave. Um, and so... Uh, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest. So be uh, so the deacon is to be honest, right? You can't, you don't want a liar, um, and you don't want a liar as a pastor. You don't want a liar. You want someone honest. Uh, you don't want a shady fella as a deacon either. So point two, not double tongued. And again, a lot of these are similar, if not exactly the same as the previous uh, list. So I'm not going to tarry too long. He is not talking out of both sides of his mouth. Right? Psalms 12 and other passages teach us that the double tongue is uh, the evidence of a double heart. Right? 
Psalm 12, 2 says, They speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor, with his flattering lips, and with a double heart do they speak. Well, is you know, nobody, well, I say nobody. Most people don't have two heart chambers. So he's not talking about a double physical heart. He's talking about, obviously, uh, like we talk about double-minded men are unstable in all their ways. Well, the double-hearted person uh, is going to... Um, speak with flattering lips and speak with vanity and and their hearts aren't true right so it kind of ties in with being honest so they're they're there's you know they're saying whatever's expedient at the time and they're you know frankly that's manipulative is what that boils down that's a kind of common way we would look at that so double-tongued is an indication we just learned something tonight he's talking about being double-tongued but we know from psalm 12 that means you're double-hearted because out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks and i'm not i don't have the reference right now but jesus speaks of that right uh, how is it that out of he likens the, the the heart to a well and how can both bitter and sweet come out of it but it does right and so let's not be hypocrites all of us struggle with having a double heart i mean i know i do from time to time and so uh, that's something that if you're going to be in an office of a pastor or deacon you really have to make sure that you are single-hearted right our focus set our affection that's one of the things in colossians so it's exceedingly difficult today specifically called out for uh, to set our affection which again is our bowels our heart on things above not on the things of the earth that's a colossians chapter 3 admonition for the laodicean church in the colossian church and so this is really important uh, in the current uh, world in which we live in okay point three uh, not given to much wine. Oh boy, we covered this in detail. I'm not going to go back and I could talk a lot. We already did talk a lot, so I'm not going to get into the wine thing in any depth. I would again conclude that like the pastor, the deacon should abstain from alcohol other than for medicinal uses. Um, not to be drunken, not to be a stumbling block. right? And so um, I know, again, we've talked about the current view and the liberty and this, that, and the other. It's just I think it's just foolish. Um, I actually, since we had that discussion, who did I just talk to? I heard another testimony, and I, I don't know who it was. It's escaping me now. Um, oh, I can't tell you. But anyway, I just had a visit with somebody. Anyway, yeah, it's irrelevant who it was. But I, once again, I heard another story of someone who was an alcoholic, uh, and they were exposed to alcohol one time. And it took only like another 10 year. It's just, it's, I mean, I hear this too often. And you just never know. So I'm just telling you, it is a snake. It'll bite you. And so, um, and so, yeah, I, I just, I've heard that. I, 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 when we went through that, I, ta- I told you the guys that. And then since that time, I've had another encounter with someone uh, who's still ill and hurting uh, from that. So, again, uh, pastors, deacons, and don't mess with it. Why? Why you don't play with snakes? We're not stink. We think we're. Stu- it's, we think it's stupid when you handle snakes, and you're tempting God, right? Don't you know? If we have holiness, this viper's not going to bite me. You know, Mark chapter twelve or sixteen or whatever that passage is there. And so, so we we look at those guys down in Kentucky or wherever they're at, holding those snakes and hand- we think, man, those guys are stupid. They are tempting God. They deserve to get bit, right? <laughs> well, you know what. Same thing happens when you handle alcohol. You think you're not going to get bit. You're foolish. Eventually that viper is going to reach up and get you. So, um, uh, Especially in the office of a pastor. But it's, you know, it's why if you're a king, if you're a pastor, if you're a bishop, it's wise. Stay away from it. Obviously there's medicinal uses and things. But, um, uh, but you know, today, you know, be careful with the NyQuil, whatever. But uh, you need to use it when you need it, but don't get hooked on it.
I was actually uh, taking too much for for uh, a few years ago, and Amy thought I was getting hooked on it. I'm like, honey, I'm really not getting hooked on NyQuil. I just have these terrible sinus problems. But anyway, um, you got to be careful. All right, not greedy of filthy lucre. Point four. At, at Heartland, uh, like a lot of churches, this is important as those who handle money are often deacons. Uh, it's just as important for the deacon to have integrity in this area because his access to finances and the flock is greater in some cases than in other in, in other churches. And so, depending on the church, depends on 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 uh, you know how much influence they have with that. But I was a deacon uh, for a season at Kansas City Baptist Temple, and never touched the money. You know, uh, but a lot of times in churches, especially a church our size, the deacons do handle the money. Uh, Lance and many others, they're, they're handling money a lot. It's important that the guys that we let handle the money, we trust them. But more than trust them, we have accountability. So they're blameless. That protects them as well in case anybody would accuse them. So it's important. Uh, usually in the offices, the two things where people are going to be accused of, what are the big two? Anybody know? I bet Ron knows. You don't have to answer though, Ron. You're not compelled. Deacons and pastors. Yep. Finance, yeah, money, yeah, yep. Uh, usually, it's sexual offense and money, and that doesn't mean it's true. It doesn't mean it's not. So you need to be blameless. That's the whole point of the of the issues. So to be blameless, don't put yourself in that situation. Amy and I were literally today we're visiting some people, and um, I was complimenting the one, one husband. I hadn't seen him in many years. I said, "You look great." You know, and the other brother-in-law was there, and he's like, "Hey, you're not. You didn't say that about me." I said, "Hey, brother, you look great too." I said his name, and uh, he's laughing at me and calling me, you know, saying, "I know, I know, you don't mean that." You know, we're just giving a good time, ribbing each other. And then the wife steps up and says, "You didn't say I look good." And I, you know what? I never did tell her she looked good. I never did, even in front of a room full of people. I just was like, you know what? I'm not going there. <laughs> and, and this particular wife should know better, you know. So, but whatever. Uh, just uh, Amy and I was conversation after we left. I said, honey, I am. I, I would in no situation. I almost told this lady, I never compliment women and tell them how good they look. I mean, there's exceptions like, hey, that you, whatever. But for the most part, that I'm not going to go there. Right? Why? Because I want to be blameless. I don't want anything to be misunderstood, and I don't want anybody to. It's you know, no, we're not even going to go there. Right? You want to be blameless in those areas, and I, that lady didn't mean anything by it, and it was a little awkward. And I just kind of passed over it, and she probably thinks I'm the rudest guy in the world, you know. But her husband will straighten her out later, so <laughs> see, he'll let her know because I'm sure he probably perceived why I just stepped over the top of that. So, uh, but you guys get what I'm saying. Uh, you got to be blameless when it comes to money, when it comes to finances, when it comes to ladies or whatever. Um, a healthy accountability structure helps protect the church and the officers and the offices. You, you got to be careful too not to get legalistic. Some of the guys get so legalistic, you know they got a problem. I mean, you're like, whoa, that's a little over the top, pal. So, um, so holding the mystery of the faith, point five, in a pure conscience. Uh, the mystery is the word there. Uh, the deacon must be be every bit as much a steward of the mysteries of the faith as the pastor and the rest of the congregation. Right. So, uh, this is a reference you want to have down in your mind, in your heart. This really rocked my world many years ago in my devotional reading, and forgive me if you know that because I say this a lot, but it's true. Let a man so account of us as ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. There's a lot of people that want to be accounted as ministers of Christ, but they don't steward the mysteries of God. How many of you have been through D2 in here? So, 
I think everybody, and you guys are probably heading that way. So the, we cover in D2 the seven mysteries, right? And so uh, we don't just do that because, well, that's kind of a cool outline. It's because really we're, if, you have, if you understand the mysteries of the New Testament, you understand the key things that we need to know. It really keeps your doctrinal boat afloat. And it keeps you in between the white lines. It deals with dispensational matters. It deals with um, end times issues. I mean, all those things tie in the Old Testament through the New Testament to the the next dispensations coming ahead of us or the next dispensation coming, um, you know, into eternity future. All those, the mysteries take care of a lot. Uh, and we break them down in seven. Some people say there's 12. However you want to, to break that down. I, I, I like the seven mysteries. Um, you know, you can find 12 mentions, but however you want to roll with that, some of them cross over. But the point is this. this you got to know those things. And you'd be surprised. Even if you haven't been through the class and know the seven mysteries, you'd be surprised. If we start talking about the, the coming, of the catching away of the church, the rapture of the church, if we start talking about the mystery, I just hit two of them today. I hit two mysteries this morning. So people are learn that stuff and don't even know it. One of them, the mystery of godliness, Right, that's the that's the incarnation of Christ. Uh, the other I touched on today was the church, right? The mystery of the church in Ephesians chapter five. So those are two mysteries we just touched on in this church today, right? So those are things that whether everyone else knows that or not, that these are quote mysteries. A deacon and a pastor definitely have to have all the mysteries down, right? They need to know those things. That's important uh, because we're responsible for stewarding that doctrine. All right, so the deacon must be every bit as uh, much a steward of those as the pastor, stewards of the mysteries of God. The mystery of godliness is God in the flesh. I mentioned that this morning, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16. We, caught, we already read it earlier tonight. It's the last verse of this chapter. And as Jesus is manifest in the flesh, guess what? He's wanting to be manifest in our flesh, our flesh as Christians, right? Pastors, deacons, and every member. He wants to be manifest in our flesh uh, through the walking in the Spirit. Of course. Um, and so uh, the mystery of Christ in the church, another mystery, if you're wanting to get the seven down, I'm going to run through them real quickly. Ephesians five thirty one through 33, uh, touched on this this morning. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. So you have these references, you just don't have them itemized there. So the first one is the mystery of godliness, First uh, Timothy 3.16, the mystery of Christ in the church, Ephesians 5.31-33. The third one is the mystery of Christ in you, Colossians 1.27, uh, the mystery of Christ in you, Colossians 1.27, to whom God made known, make known uh, which is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, we understand that when we study that out, Christ in us, is that temporary or permanent? It's permanent, right? So there's, there's brethren up, up the street, around town, around the county, right? They don't get that. IHOP don't get that. And so they're like, well, they don't get the mystery of godliness. It's not fully. Oh, yeah, Christ comes and he goes. No, that's the Old Testament. Now he's in us, right? And so that, that, that mystery kind of, as you put it all together, Christ in us, the hope of glory, and you study the Spirit of God, the sealing of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Ghost, you start to learn, oh, wow, there's a lot of assurance in having the mystery of Christ in you, Colossians one twenty seven. The fourth one is the mystery of Israel's restoration. Uh, again, I was mentioning earlier that this is a dispensational thing. Yeah, what is God doing with all those promises to Israel? Are those over? Well, our Calvinist friends would say that. Our Reformed theology friends would say, oh yeah, those covenants are now given to us. We're in a covenant mode. Well, I would say we definitely, God has covenants, uh, but uh, these, these covenants um, uh, th- that were given to Abraham are going to be fulfilled literally. And that is very clear in Romans 11.25. This is not talking about the church. It's talking about Israel. 
We are the Israel of God, but the Israel is Israel. God has a promise for them, uh, Romans eleven twenty five through 28 For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So I could point to a lot of evangelicals today, um, from Todd Friel, who I, who's a great guy, who's a really entertaining and does preach the gospel. To you know, there's a lot of common, there's a lot of people out today, popular evangelicals that don't get it. That really don't believe. They believe that God is done with Israel, which, by the way, is the position of the Roman Catholic Church, and that the church has inherited all the promises to Israel. That's hogwash. It's not true at all. God still has a plan for his nation Israel. Very clearly says so. Romans 11, 25-28. That mystery is not fully fulfilled yet. So I often point out when I teach through Romans 9-11, through this is prophecy. Right? What is God going to do with Israel? Well, he's going to restore them eventually. When? When the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That's what it says in, in verse 25, right? Don't get wise in your own conceit. Blindness in part has happened to Israel as a nation until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, right? Until the gospel goes around the world. The fullness of the Gentiles is not the same as, uh, as the uh, times of the Gentiles. It goes on to say in verse 26, And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion a deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins, as concerning the gospel, just to be clear, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. So a lot of our, our brethren uh, break their neck doing cartwheels, trying to get around verse 28, and, and say that election, that... that, that uh, Election there is talking about the church, and, and they tie this all together with Romans chapter five, Ephesians chapter uh, f- uh, five, and some other passages. And and listen, we th- this has nothing to do with our election. This is dealing with Israel's election. They are the elect people of God. God has made a plan for them, and God will will fulfill His promises to Israel when when the fullness of the Gentiles become in when the Gentile church is bride of Christ, pictured in Ruth, is filled up. God catches us away. He will fully turn his attention to Israel, and it will be in a time of sorrow and great tribulation. Right, Beginning of sorrows and great tribulation, Matthew 24. Just as Jesus prophesied and told us that's what's going to happen, and he will restore his people Israel as the Gentile nations get judged, and ultimately Israel will rule. The, the, the seventh day, the, uh, the uh, Sabbath, thousand-year reign, isn't for the church, it's for Israel. Our inheritance is Jesus Christ. He is our Sabbath. He's our rest. Israel's rest is the millennium. A lot of people don't know those things. That all of that is sitting on top of Matthew eleven or Romans eleven, twenty five through twenty eight. And so if I'm losing you, then don't sweat it. But these are really important doctrines because a lot of people are very confused today on a lot of these issues. A lot of popular people that are writing books and got all and all over your television and internet that don't really have this stuff straight. And it leads them back to Rome, ultimately. Ultimately, when the Antichrist comes on, we know from the book of uh, Revelation, Rome is a part of that. And they're going back to Rome whether they know it or not. And so, anyway, the mystery of the catching away or the rapture of the church is another mystery. It's the fifth one. And I, the verses I gave you there, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one, First 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 18. First uh, Corinthians uh, fifteen fifty one says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed, right? In the instant, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. 
the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then, and, uh, and he talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, we will see him. The mystery of iniquity is the sixth one. Second Thessalonians 2, 7. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let till he be taken out of the way. And so uh, there's a spirit of uh, Antichrist that's been working since the first century. We see that in First John, uh, right? And, and so we understand that, they, that there's a mystery of iniquity. Then there's the mystery of Babylon religion, the great mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. There's also a, a, a false religious system, Revelation 17.5. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. You track down this, this uh, uh, false religious system that's been around since Babylonian times. Uh, you can track that all the way through Pergamum. Uh, as the priesthood of Babylon was transferred from Pergamum, Pergamum it went to Rome. Today, the Babylonian priesthood is being executed by the Roman Catholic Church. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, because why? They don't, they're ignorant of the mysteries. They don't really know the mysteries. So, but you guys are wise to that. So you are a steward of the mysteries, right? You have to, I have to teach this stuff and pass it to the next generation. Because if I don't, I'm not a faithful minister. Not just the pastor, but then the deacons. So the deacons need to have a, D2 proficiency, you know, in the Word of God when it comes to the sub-mysteries. So the context of the the statement that I just read about mystery Babylon religion, Revelation 17, deals with the religious Babylon and her influence among the kings and nations of the earth. She is killed by the very king she empowered to exalt the Antichrist. So this chapter is a is is a conversation with the angel who was this who uh, had the seven vials which are poured out in the full measure of God's wrath just before Jesus returns. So again, you're getting into end times information. You're getting into uh, those types of what the word eschatology is the fifty cent word that you know if you got a big degree you can put on that. But it just means end times, right? And what's going to happen. So these mysteries take us from Christ being manifest in the flesh through the church through how what God's going to do with Israel and how God's going to judge uh, even the Gentile nations and even the Antichrist. So it touches on a lot of those things. So the reason I believe the Holy Ghost is placing this in the passage is because of the contrast between the mystery of godliness and the mystery of the church and the mystery of iniquity. And Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Right? He mentions this deal about the mysteries because it's a big deal. Uh, God is manifest in the flesh and indwells his church until Israel is restored and taken in the rapture. Until the church is taken up and uh, we're taken away in the rapture. So the last two um, uh, mentioned are diametrically opposed to Christ. The church and Israel, right? The mystery of iniquity is associated with the son of perdition who is the Antichrist. And, And through signs and lying wonders he will deceitfully and peaceably be ushered into power through the aid of his bride. Not not the bride of Christ, but his bride, this harlot. Uh, and it'll be iron mixed with clay that comprises the Roman Catholic Church and her false doctrine. She will pave the way with the kings of the earth so she can enter prominence. The Antichrist uh, will dis- uh, will discard of his bride at the midpoint of the tribulation when he is wounded in his head to ra- rise again as the man of God. And that'll be a fake second coming of Christ through the destroying of the third of the earth. Um, not to worry, God will match that and destroy all the earth during his kingdom as he brings to naught uh, the end of the Antichrist kingdom at that seven year, at the end of that seven year period. But the Antichrist is going to have quite a, quite a run. He has his own bride. He has his own uh, religious system that is in competition with the true, authentic, real, biblical truth that we are presenting today. 
We represent. This isn't just knowledge. We actually, we're like Adam and Eve in the garden. We represent something. Not only to God, as His sons, right? That's, that's uh, by the way, since the resurrection, that's a new one. We are the sons of God. You don't see that except in Adam and us. And in Israel as a whole is a son of God in Exodus chapter 4. So now we represent. And so Paul's like saying, this is important. You pastors and you deacons better get this down. Because listen, you, this is who you are and this is who the enemy is. False religious system, false bride, it's all light, light, all in opposition to what we are presenting. Right? So, um, so it's important that these things are taught, and that's why we take the time uh, to go through Revelation here to the church, go through Revelation and HBI, and lay out the seven dispensations in great detail. And all of those things are all a part of stewarding the mysteries of God. The first 12 chapters of Genesis, all of those things we, we teach uh, are part of what God is teaching or is, has stewarded us in His Word. And God has given us handles on these things. And ultimately... When God does pour out his vile judgments and literally returns with us, we are with him, his bride, to establish his rule and reign on the planet. Paul is aware of these matters and wants us to understand that we are up at what we're up against. He starts this chapter by saying, 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit, Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, not this chapter, chapter 4 of First Timothy, uh, seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So Paul understood the importance of the men of God, especially the officers, being grounded in the word of God so they could withstand the attacks that are inevitable in the last days as the fullness of the Gentiles become in. So that means being in the pastorate is going to be tough in the days ahead, because uh, it's going to be coming. It's always been tough, frankly. doesn't matter, but it's going to get tough. And so the mysteries are... That's why Randy's going through apologetics. we got to have an answer, right? Uh, the mysteries uh, are not suggestions. They are truth revealed that all members of the body of Christ should strive to understand and know. We are all stewards of the mysteries, one of them being mentioned in 1 Timothy 3.16, which brings us back to where we started and will help us close up tonight. A deacon who does not know the Word of God and the truth he is supposed to steward will not reflect the Word of God and the truth he is supposed to steward. So... I was hustling trying to get through all of these, but guess what? I didn't get it done. So we'll pick up on point six next week, and uh, and uh, we'll work our way down through point C, and then we'll be done, and we'll move on to the next uh, final uh, you know, discussion of the character of the congregation and how that's reflected. So the last, we're not just talking about the officers. We'll get to the congregation as we wrap up the chapter. And then we'll move into chapter four. All right, any questions? That's a lot. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Yes. Uh, look at Revelation 17. That's a good question. You should do. Yeah, it'll be a false resurrection. God. It's part of the abomination. It's a great deception. Part of the abomination and desolation. Uh, he goes in and offers sacrifice after that. But uh, yes, he is. He is. He is worshipped as God or a God. Okay, so if you kind of in a synopsis, you can see in Revelation 17, um, in verse, uh, 
where this where this mystery is revealed. I'll just take it from verse one. And there and there came one of the seven angels which had seven vials, and talked with uh, me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. And the the waters are defined for us as people over in. The same chapter in verse 15. He saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So this this whore is um, sitting upon a lot of people. She's covering, she's got a lot of influence with the world. Uh, With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet-colored and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, uh, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. As you can see, fornication is part of her M.O. So this is a a, a very... um, The image here is a very sexually inappropriate acting woman right so she's very loose and and uses her prowls her uh, her assets to influence the kings of the earth and of course it's an analogy but you get the picture okay so then you get to the mystery in verse 5 and upon her forehead was was a name written and this was this all of this ties us to rome but this really ties us to rome mystery babylon the great mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth so we can clearly trace through history the priesthood of babylon with names going from when Babylon, the Persians uh, beat the Babylonians, the Babylonian priesthood moved to Pergamum in uh, in Turkey, uh, and then it was uh, to Attalus uh, transferred the authority and the priesthood to the Roman emperors, and uh, before Jesus was even born, uh, and then the College of Cardinals was actually a pagan college before there was even before Christ. And so that is has has been converted to with in 360 A.D. Uh, with Constantine, that College of Cardinals was converted into uh, the very the very uh, structure that is today the Roman Catholic Church. So the priesthood, the garb, the whole all of it is is an exact mirror image of a Babylonian religion. It's female deity worship, the whole thing, Mariolatry. They just changed the names and applied Babylonian religion to Rome, along with all the office and authority. Okay, so that's important. Uh, that's how we get all that. There's a lot to that. But uh, I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints. So we go back and uh, the, the saints are suffering and have for the last you know couple thousand years, but also will also in the future. Uh, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee uh, the mystery of the woman and, and of the beast that carrieth her. So she's 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 harnessing the influence of this beast for her own benefit, and uh, he is carrying her, and and so just just hang with me here. Which has seven heads and ten horns, and these seven heads are gonna are, are very also uh, are very clearly defined here. And shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind that hath wisdom. So here's the answer to what these images are. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Uh, a lot of people place that as, as literally uh, the Roman mountains there in, in, is, in uh, Rome. 
um, there are seven, and there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and there is another yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. Now, these five kings are, are likened to, depending on which list you get: Pharaoh, Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Alexander, Alexander, uh, and then the transfer of Attilus to the the Pope and the Antichrist. Same same office, different people, but ultimately. The Antichrist ends up inhabiting, uh, you know, Greg Axe will teach you that the Antichrist is the Pope. I don't know that the, he is the Pope, uh, but he will be able to um, be supported by Rome as the Bride of Christ, as she rides him in, and uh, they have a partnership for power and authority. That's pretty easy to see today. If you just the newest pope is a Jesuit, so he's not even a real priest. He's just some bar guy who is a bouncer, and uh, they like him and they bring him in. That's what Jesuit Jesuits are not necessarily theologically trained. They become theologically trained, but they're the way the Jesuit system is set up. They're influencers first, and they're kind of like the CIA is sort of like set up on that uh, same system. But uh, these are influencers that are brought in for the express. Uh, purpose of advancing the the Roman Catholic faith through subterfuge, through political intrigue and influence. There's all kinds of things Jesuits are trained to do. Uh, Even the system of education is Jesuit-led for Catholics, uh, which is a good system for training people. I mean, they do have good education. But the point of all of that is is that uh, the the, the Roman Catholic system uh, is certainly... Uh, going to take advantage of this Antichrist political. He rises first as a politician. He doesn't start off as a religious leader. He's a political leader. And that's where they get married. That's where she rides into power. In the midpoint, he kills her. So very clearly, these seven, uh, these, uh, these ten, these, uh, these uh, seven kings uh, are dealing with the past up to the present office, or the, or the uh, not the office, but the present uh, power that will be available to the beast when he comes into power. It's not talking about uh, contemporary, uh, the seven heads or seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. There are seven kings, five are fallen, one is, and another is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. So it's dealing with um, the Antichrist uh, and also eventually the indwelling. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seventh and goeth into perdition. So when you go back and you look at uh, you know, the ten horns being ten kings and you look at the, the iron mixed with clay back in the image of Babylon, you can see that God is working uh, to bring into to power um, you know the Antichrist, and ultimately Jesus destroys him. So these have one mind and shall give their power and their strength in, unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for He is the Lord of Lords. That's what's going to be contested. Ultimately, who is God? Who is the Lord of Lords? And the King of the Kings, uh, King of Kings, and they that are um, with Him are called and chosen uh, faithful. And, and now we're already gone at this point, but there's going to be, you know, basically a showdown. Verse 15, he and he saith unto me, the waters which thou sawest where the horse sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So that's the influence she has. The ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, uh, these shall hate the horde. Now these are not historic. These aren't the seven mountains and the seven... Uh, the seven kings that are mentioned in verse 9. These are actually at the time of the, the rise of the Antichrist. It appears that there are ten horns uh, which which I saw upon the beast. These shall hate the whore. 
and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. So there's ten kings that will be accompanying uh, the power of the Antichrist. And so unlike Jesus who died for his church, the Antichrist will actually throw his church under the bus, which is the whore of perdition, so that he can continue to advance himself. It's after that that he takes on the role of God. And uh, and so he the abomination that makes desolate for God hath put in uh, in their hearts to fulfill His will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. The woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. I have that as Rome. Some have that as Jerusalem. Um, I, and and many uh, I know right now are really have a lot of consternation over that. I can tell you this. Mystery Babylon religion up to the midpoint of the tribulation is in Rome. After that, after she dies, uh, the next place you see um, the showdown is in Jerusalem. That's where Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom. So to me, it's not a huge mystery. That, that is, It's migrated through from Babylon to Rome via Pergamum. I have no problem seeing it migrate uh, once he gets his power, he kills his own bride. He allows the kings of the earth to kill her. And then he, the power goes to Jerusalem. That's where he does the abomination of desolation. He has a new place to do business, and that's Jerusalem. And he's drawn closer and closer to God's property, right? And so um, that's how I see it going down. Some people may disagree with me, uh, and I know some people will, but that's okay. It's still yet future, so I'll give them some grace. We can't all be right. No, so I don't know. I, but I do see it pretty clearly uh, as... as uh, he takes his bride, casts her down. These ten kings destroy her. These are the same people he's in league with. Uh, and uh, Probably. Probably financial sectors is my guess. This is a total guess. Let's throw a dart at it. Okay, let me let me be careful with what I say here. I don't know this to be true. I, I, as a prophecy conference, I put this out, and I noticed that some people didn't like it, and they took it. I think they took it down. But um, but it, but if you just did the work on your own and started looking at the United Nations and not the United Nations per se, but go back. Go back in time to the probably the 80s, 90s, and read Agenda 21, which is pretty boring. But you can get it. I got it on my Kindle. I mean, it's not like secret documents. And you look at Agenda 21 and what the at the ultimately. Okay, let me just boil the, the. I'm getting way off track, guys. So if you boil Revelation down and the seals that get opened at the beginning, it's ultimately the the title deed of the earth. And there's only one person that can claim the earth, and that's Jesus. But what is going on? You don't. We don't have to wait till the rapture to see what's happening. We have a world government that's working hard to try to establish itself. The currency right now, which is literally underway as I'm speaking, they're trying to switch the currency over uh, so that we can all then become servitudes. We become serfs, or we become peasants, and and we become the people under the financial bondage, which is leading us right to the mark of the beast and all that. Okay, so. You know, if you if you look at that, who who in the world are the people who you know think like this? That think that they're they're so audacious to take control of the currency economy and ultimately the people of the earth? Well, these are these people, right? And we call it the G7 right now. You know, and their economic powers. So if you go back and you look at, and I have a map somewhere, uh, and you look at the uh, the the the. The, the plan. There are economic. There are ten economic sectors. 
a lot of people used to think it was the EU and there were 10 nations and then there's 12 nations and there's 14 nations and whatever, you know, whatever. Um, it, I don't, I'm not so convinced it's the EU as much as the financial sectors and whoever the influencers are of those because there's an Asia sector, there's a North America sector, that's what the NAFTA, NAFTA, North America Free Trade Agreement, they got rid of that and now they call it, uh, they called it the North America Partnership for Security and Peace under Obama. And I don't know what they're, they probably still call it that. But all of that is about economics and trade. And to do that, you have to erode it national sovereignty and ultimately individual sovereignty, which is where it's all headed. That sounds really boring and, and all of that. But if you just like read what's like there and you look at it, and then you tie it in with the religious arm, which is the, the uh, there's a religious arm of the UN called the um, uh, International Peace what is it called? International Monetary Fund? No, no. It's uh, Reverend Moon was the head of it, actually. The, he's dead now. Universal Peace Foundation. Universal, yeah, Universal Peace Foundation. What a perfect name. I mean, Universal means Catholic. So the Universal Peace Foundation is a, actually a, like a branch of the UN. And uh, it's, so, it's so ecumenical. Um, I mean, Buddhists, Catholics... Muslims, everybody, come together, one big happy family. And all of that, too, then you tie the, tie the environmentalism, which is the mechanism uh, to, you know, take over property of the earth, carbon footprints, you know, and assert that, you know, we have, we, we need to steward the earth, we are the procurers of the earth, whoever we are, and, uh, and so you have that big power structure. So I believe ultimately that will somehow be leveraged. Antichrist is going to be slick, and he's going to weasel his way right to the top of that food chain. Ultimately, as a politician, he won't be successful. That's why the war does break out. So not everybody's on board with that. The Gentiles are always going to fight. So once he gets into power, he promises peace, and he comes in peacefully, but it doesn't last long. And uh, there's war. But by the midpoint, he goes well beyond that, and now he's God. So he's the martyr, everybody. You know, so it's just, uh, you can just, I mean, now it's easy to see. In 1988, when I got saved, or 87, I got saved, and 88 reasons why and all that stuff. I'm like, how's this going to happen? You know, we're still watching these movies, and, you know, deep in the night. And it's kind of foggy. They'll never take away our guns. <laughs> Boy, right. And so, you know, so you can see where it's all headed. So I do believe he'll have that kind of power. And it'll also be religion. So if you don't go along, you know, uh, well, we know what's happened in the past when you don't go along. So, of course, and what's coming down the road, right, if they get a digital currency, then everybody will be judged on your social score and how well you play with others. And if you don't play the way they want you to, then you're going to be demerited. So it'll affect you financially, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that, could, that could all happen before the mark of the beast. You know, so there's a lot of leverage that'll be come into play probably even before the rapture so so um so that's i don't know if that answers your questions but uh, there's a lot to consider with all of those things and uh, it's good good to talk about i don't get a venue to just talk about those things uh because we don't really do that on wednesday night because we're in another study so good all right so we'll we'll park the car there uh now let's uh let's uh i'm a little over on time but we can we can uh we can pick this up next time. Uh, I saw Steve Morford today. He's doing really good. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah, let me turn this off. Um, no, that's good. Ron, you're you're on your A game, brother. I am. So, I went fifty 